0: Hello lovelies, welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia, a fat person and professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies, and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears, we will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against diet culture, anti-fatness, ableism, racism, etc. If you'd like to support the Fat Joy podcast and get bonus content as a thank you, please check us out at patreon.com slash fatjoy. I am so glad you're here with us. Enjoy. Hello, lovelies. Welcome back to the Fat Joy Podcast. Today, I am joined by Alexandra. Oh, Alexandra, I didn't realize, I realized I didn't ask how to pronounce your last name. Is it Shuan? Nope, it's Shuan. Shuan. Okay, Alexandra yeah. Shuan. All right. We're not going to rerecord that because I think that's just part of the imperfection of a podcast. Um, and we like imperfection because it's counter to white supremacy. So we're just going to start there. Um, so... I have been following you for a while, Um, Selkie Counseling, which is your practice. You put out such great Instagram content, Alexandra. Like, it is so informative. You do these kind of carousels, and I find, like, I'm always resharing them. And then I was so delighted when I was interviewing another guest, Anne McGlattery, who is doing some great stuff within the medical school system, mentioned you and that you're friends. And I was like, oh! Could you, could you do an intro? Could you like connect me? I would <laughs> yeah. love to have Alexander on the podcast. So here you are. Thank you.
1: Yes. I'm so glad to be here. And yes, Anna's like one of my dear friends, D&D crew. <laughs> yeah. From like way, way back. So
0: it's just a really nice connection. I love that. D&D like Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah.
1: <laughs> are you total <laughs> yeah. geeks? I love it. Oh yeah. We're, we're big old nerds. Like, yeah, we, Anne's gonna be in town in a couple of weeks. I'm so excited. They're gonna join in for um, a session or two when they're in Victoria. Here,
0: that's so fun. Oh, amazing, amazing. So, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, Alexandra? Sure. Uh, um, yeah. So my
1: name's Alexandra Schuen. I'm a registered clinical counselor here in British Columbia. In Canada. I don't know how wide the reach is of the audience.
0: You know what? 26 countries and counting apparently. I okay, just got stats okay. the other day. I know. And amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So yeah, I have a um,
1: remote and in-person counseling practice um, called Selkie Counseling. I actually, my office space, I haven't quite opened yet. I've been in the process the last couple of months, which is really exciting and busy. Um So, yes, I'll be able to start seeing clients in person here in Victoria, but I work with people remotely all over the province and in a few other select provinces kind of based on the regulatory guidelines and all that. I am like relatively, well, I don't know if I can call myself new anymore to my private practice. I'm coming up on like a year and a half. That's still pretty new. Um i have done a lot of work in like feminist and anti-violence organizations prior to becoming a counselor um i did like some volunteer coordination work for many years which i just adored and like love working in groups with people um but yeah i am here in victoria it's unseated lakuan and wasainich territories here um, that i live on as a trespasser on these indigenous lands what else about me? I could do the business stuff, but I could uh, say that I, we know that I love Dungeons and Dragons. Big Lord of the Rings fan as well. <laughs> um, I like to bring in uh, like some of that like narrative, like storytelling approach to my work. But um yeah, the focus of my work, I love working with folks of all body size, but particularly as a fat person myself, you know, there's a, special place in my heart working with other fat folks and I find often it's like one of the first spaces that fat folks have to talk about their body movement relationship to food in a way that is not actively like harmful and violent and fat phobic which is beautiful and like heartbreaking all at the same time
0: yeah that's amazing I it, you know I think I may have shared this on the podcast before, but I've done a lot of therapy and there's only one therapist I've ever worked with who, um, while they are not fat, they are an anti-oppression educator and could hold space for me and what I wanted to talk about from that lens, which was amazing. But I, yeah, when I think about therapists and counselors and social workers that I've seen... Even when I was doing eating disorder recovery, it was Especially. Especially, yeah, there was there was no understanding, no consideration. It was just basically propagating anti-fatness comments deeply connected to diet culture. I mean, again, I wish Mm -hmm. I had known back then. I wish I had had a voice to say no. I wish I knew to choose better but I didn't and harm was done. Um, we're definitely gonna talk about a tra- having a trauma-informed practice because I know that's something that you you do and I you will get into that because I think that's so important because trauma really does happen in, in these spaces and these spaces that are supposed to be filled with trust. So I, I wanna ask about the name Selkie. I've always been curious, where does that come from? Um, I love seals. <laughs> it kind <laughs> of started, um,
1: when I moved to Victoria or shortly, shortly before. It just kind of, I think we're, my partner and I were watching like a documentary about <laughs> the Baikal Lake in Russia, which is like, it's really cool. Look, look it up. It's like one of the, I think it's the oldest and deepest. Lake in the world, and the world's only freshwater seal lives there. Anyway, it's really cool. It's almost like the Galapagos, like it's such an isolated ecosystem. So there's just like this shot of the seal in this documentary. And it was just like so cute and like fat and round. And it was like, <laughs> oh my God. I like started my obsession with seals. And then I I moved to the West Coast um, here in Victoria. And uh uh at the time. The, the bylaws have since changed as they should to protect the wildlife but when i first moved here you could go to like the oak bay harbor and like in the gift shop buy a thing of like frozen chopped up fish and go down to the docks and just chuck it in the water and the seals would be there to feed them oh that's so fun yeah so it was just it was something i started doing for like a lot of self-care because i was at a big time of transition in my life when i moved to victoria um And it just brought me, like, so much peace to, like, go see the seals and to feed them. And then learning a little bit more about, like, um, the folklore around Selkies and how it's connected to a lot of, like, Celtic uh, folklore. And I have um, Scottish and... British roots myself as part of my ancestry and I don't have like really any cultural connections as like a white uh, trespasser by function of like white supremacy so it just felt like a like a point of connection for me and I just love like yeah seals are like strong and agile and fat and (laughs) like beautiful and like cute I actually probably can't see it on my arm but I, I have a a seal and like a and a woman like naked like swimming together that I just got in the fall yeah
0: oh I love that nice oh I may have seen her on Instagram I was looking at different artists and there was an artist who did that for you custom right yeah art brat comics this is yes oh my god I was looking at their work yeah 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 and then I saw and it was Selkie Kelsling I'm like oh that's Alexandra okay so I've actually seen a photo of it you don't have to take your shirt off (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, well, maybe I should show you a little shoulder yeah.
0: later. But <laughs> uh, I love that. I get that about seals, though. I I did this um l- this leadership program where I was flying out to California every month for about a year, and I would fly into San Francisco because it was just north of San Fran. It was in Sonoma, um, and then San Jose was another thing I was doing. But every time I went, I I didn't care how touristy it was. I had to go down to Fisherman's Bay or Frenchman's Bay, Frenchman's Bay. And just, I would sit for hours and just watch the seals on the wharfs, like, right, Fishman's Bay, Frenchman's Bay, whatever it's called down in San Francisco where you go. It's like all the different piers and because they are amazing and loud and oh, they take up space. Like, they claim their space. They do not give a shit. They will roll over each other, push each other. Like, there was something about, maybe that's why I found it so fascinating was this That they're, they are incredibly large, powerful, and yet also deeply graceful and fast. And there's something about the both end of that that I really loved and have always been drawn to and I could just I would I would sit there and watch them for hours just like (laughs) right yeah (laughs) um it's such a great name for your practice I love that thank
1: you yeah and like with the the folklore around selkies there's a lot around like it's about transformation um a lot of the folklore too is connected to themes of like like disembodiment and like you know because selkie they're seal by water and they can shed their pelts and become human by land there's a lot of stories of like um their pelts being stolen and them like being held hostage on land and like getting their pelts back so they can return to the sea and selkies can be all genders too i just think there's like so much richness in the the stories around it and like
0: the themes yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's great. I'm going to have to go read some some myths about Selkie, some stories. So Alexandra, tell us about your relationship with, journey towards the word fat. How has this word woven through your life with you?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, there's uh, so much similarity in... Uh, the people you interview like on the on this podcast that I think for a lot of folks it uh, is like incredibly harmful and weaponized early in life that's definitely my experience it was like the quickest like sharpest uh, way to hurt me for many many years and many people did and I would say it wasn't was I'm like, I'm only 32. Um, But I, I was actually very fortunate that in my early 20s, I um, was able to get on the path of unlearning that phobia. And like looking back now, oh, that's really young. I'm really fortunate that I was able to have some experiences in my early 20s to step more into, you know, then it was like the world of body positivity and like, you know, the Dove campaigns and things that I was being exposed to are those the things that sparked it or was there something deeper that it it was a lot of different things that was definitely coming into the zeitgeist I also had my feminist awakening at that time I very obviously looking back now I've always been a feminist like I I found a report card a couple years ago from like grade five where my teacher literally said like Alexandra's thoughts about like gender equality are like very apparent. <laughs> wow in grade five. Oh, amazing. I didn't identify with the word for a really long time and I even remember in high school like making like really offensive and like disparaging comments about like feminists uh you know with just so much internalized misogyny and so it was in my early 20s I finally came to uh, identify with the word, even though I think in practice in a lot of ways, I don't, I'd always kind of shown up in the world to varying degrees, um, in a feminist way. Um, and yeah, like fat liberation, like body positivity kind of rolled into that around the same time. Um, but I, I, do kind of have like a specific memory and moment. Um, I I mentioned earlier before we started recording, I'm a recovering theater kid. Um, And I was doing a workshop in, I had just graduated my undergrad. So I was like 21, about to turn 22. And I was the youngest person doing this workshop. It was kind of like a was a month-long like artist residency where we did like a lot of like yoga training and like movement stuff and created like a little piece to perform at the end and I remember sitting outside having lunch with a group of the people in the workshop one day it's like downtown Calgary in the summer and there was this woman who was probably in her like mid 40s at the time which you know as a 21 year old it's like kind of looking at her in awe um she was also named alexandra which is kind of cool and she was just this like incredibly powerful woman um like artist uh worked as like a dancer like doing sex work like was just so embodied and empowered and i remember we're having this conversation about bodies over lunch and she was saying, like, you just got to do it. You just got to choose to, like, be in your body and to love it. And I was like, debating her back, and I was like, "But well, it's not that easy. And it's like, if your body size is bigger, I was like, it's not that easy. And she just looked at me, and she said, just fucking do it. <laughs> <laughs> Done. <laughs> but really, like, it, it, like, it's really, like, turned something for me in that moment. And I was just like, okay, I'll try. <laughs> and then I went and bought my first bikini oh you did
0: amazing immediately amazing. after yeah wow yeah that's like that moment where someone holds a mirror and they like call you on your bullshit and they're like i fiercely love you right now you will do this like you just fucking do it oh yeah so good it gives me goosebumps
1: thinking <laughs> i know i have
0: them too wow mm-hmm. and then so how long before you wore the bikini i think like later that summer amazing
1: it got delivered to me in, in Calgary. I was, I was there, I was, like, <laughs> mod cloth, you know, oh, retro, cloth, yes. uh, high-waisted, I think it had, like, cherries on it. Yeah, um, I, I think I had the same my, <laughs> my, Yeah, it was my first, you know, fat kini. Yeah, and that was, that was, like, really a turning point, and from there, you know, understanding more about feminism, intersectional feminism, body positivity, and then that rolled into over the next couple of years, like, uh, learning about, like, I think it turned into, like, fat positivity, and then the place I feel like I've been, uh, learning the last couple of years and identifying more with, um, being a fat liberationist.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Oh.
1: And, yeah, sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. I was gonna say, and, and using the word, uh, fat, like, in a neutral way, um, probably, like, a good... I don't know, six, seven years, I've been referring to myself as fat in a, in a neutral way. And, um, that's how I refer to myself in my practice. I've actually started using the term lately, visibly fat.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. What is that note? What's the purpose there?
1: I I mean, (laughs) this is like a very mishmash. I don't have any solid thoughts on it, but I think, I'm on TikTok a lot and there's a lot of people who are maybe in the like midsize range who are claiming the word fat or seeing like actually like a lot of straight size people mm-hmm. claiming the word not because the world actually orients to them as a fat person but more like it seems to be based on um, just like fat phobic beliefs and believing that that's like a bad thing still anyway. I, I don't know quite how I think or feel <laughs> about that but Um, Saying that I am visibly fat, that I I am read as fat by I would say probably anyone that I encounter in the world.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. I saw something yesterday or the day before an article about how the the phrase midsize has now been kind of as we've gone kind of almost like the heroin chic uh, body type is back. Mm. Apparently, oh god where midsize now means like a size 6 to 8. Oh god. And I'm like, <laughs> "What?" Like I it's just it's yeah. So I that's Awful. very interesting to think about. Yeah. Yeah, using the phrase visibly fat to to I almost hear it as like as a making sure that the identity doesn't get lost Mm because a lot of people do just use the word fat like they'll they'll kind of scrunch over to the side and look I'm fat you know that that horrible stuff um whereas no I'm visibly fat I'm red as fat I have systemic barriers because of my fatness like that's a very different thing so I think that word visible yeah conveys that really well
1: yeah yeah that's what I've been kind of toying around
0: with and that's how I feel about it. At least for now, that might change, but well, and it kind of does, right? I mean, it used to be all like I was saying I was like body positive this and I work with people with curves and, you know, so language changes and I think I think thinking about it and trying it on and playing with it and adapting and growing it is is I don't know, I think part of the joy of this work, like how can we be even more equitable? How can we be even more justice focused? What are the mm-hmm. words we can use to convey that is such an interesting space to be in. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I like that. So we're going to talk about embodiment, which is something that has not come up on the podcast yet. Um, It's one of the reasons I was super excited to talk to you. We're going to talk about trauma-informed practice. We're going to talk about how all of this comes together in the work that you do. I know you've also um, worked with the body trust um, organizations. We can talk about that too. But let's start with like, I think this word embodiment is used a lot. I use it a lot. I probably use it wrong. (laughs) Um, When you say I do embodiment work, like what does that mean for you? What's your kind of way into this concept?
1: Yeah, that's like, that's a big question because I think (laughs) embodiment um, uh, is like a pretty broad concept. I don't think I have the singular definition of it, but the way that I like to think about it is getting in touch with sensation in the body, um, listening to the body. Uh, I was fortunate to have a supervisor who's somatically um, trained when I was in school and I just learned so much from her um, uh, in those techniques. And it's like, you know, we live in this white supremacist eurocentric western society at least you know you, you and i do and that is a world that tells us to just live from the neck up um that's the best way to survive that's the safest way to survive to be seen as uh, rational thinking beings not as feeling humans <laughs> um and there's a lot of like ways that Gender also gets tied up in those sort of standards. So embodiment I see as a way of like being in the body instead of observing the body. I think it's helpful to think of kind of in contrast to the concept of self-objectification, which takes us out of the body. It takes us into thinking, judging, rationalizing, often shame too, of like viewing our body from an outside perspective and thinking about how we're being perceived, how others might be thinking about us. And I think to be embodied is to feel a little bit more at home in your body, to feel connected to what it's telling you when it's possible to listen to that um, felt sensation, that gut feeling and moving towards more pleasure, more joy, which you said like, oh, we haven't talked about embodiment on the podcast yet. I think you absolutely have. The whole podcast is about joy
0: and like, (laughs) how is joy not an embodied experience? That's true. Yes, you're right. Thank you for that. Yeah, (laughs) it's true. Yeah, I love that way of, the way of, it's almost like we move from human doing to human being, just kind of that. I always, it's interesting. So, I always feel this very viscerally as like because I'm very head neck up and have been most of my life and then I've had to work for the last 10 years to kind of very viscerally I imagine like taking my energy that's sitting somewhere like on you know in my crown area like my forehead and like dropping the ball down to like where my sternum is it's like and I have to remember to that I have to embody it I have to like intentionally draw it down my body because it's not I think it's becoming more slowly more and more my natural state but it's not has not been for decades my natural state which is to connect to my body Um, and I think a lot of that is because with diet culture with anti-fatness we're separated from our bodies very early is this what you see and what you think about with embodiment oh absolutely and um i think that speaks to safety
1: too it's it's often safer to exit the body and to stay in the rational thinking place but it absolutely starts so early in the way that antifat bias converges with all the other forms of oppression experiences of violence that can generate trauma all of those things kind of set up this perfect storm to make leaving your body the safest thing. Right. Um, and also, you know, there's a lot of ways I see it too. I think maybe this is what you were speaking to. I have felt this as like ways to make up the social currency to like make up for the fact that like we have fat bodies. Um, we need to be like as smart as we can be. Um as, like, well-read as we can be, right, because people are going to automatically perceive us as being um, ignorant and lazy and unintelligent,
0: and there's definitely a gender socialization aspect to that as well. Absolutely. Yeah, for me, it was, I had always had, like, the best hair and the best accessories and the best clothes. I was, like, so outward, like, I don't know what's the word, Like accessories and accoutrement, like I was always presenting as if that would hide my fatness, hide my belly, hide my whatever. Yeah. What is, what's the impact on us psychologically, physically, spiritually, mentally? Like when we do kind of separate from our bodies, like what does that actually do to us as humans?
1: Yeah. Oh, that's a really good question. I, you know, what comes to mind is um, kind of a, a version of Naomi Wolf's um, quote in the beauty myth that, you know, uh, was it like a culture obsessed with, like dieting is one that's like easier to control. I think
0: like this is maybe a little tinfoily hat. <laughs> I love tin, I love tinfoil hat. I love it. Bring it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's a lot easier to
1: for these systems to perpetuate themselves and to continue to oppress people if we are so individually focused and so hypervigilant about, I mean, think about it. It's like a, our bodies, something that we uh, interact with like on a near constant basis, our relationship with food and movement. These are things that we are like constantly doing that we have to do. In, and I'm not—I don't mean movement as an exercise, but like you know, your body moving around, uh, interacting with your body, breathing, like needing to eat food to survive, and to stay so hyperfixated or hyper vigilant on edge, in like an anxiety fight or flight response about that. It's going to be a lot easier for people to transgress our boundaries for us to operate within these systems. And, you know, there's like both a benefit and a drawback to that because one, we have to survive and where's there
0: also space to challenge those systems and how we show up in the world. Yeah. Yeah. There's such a tension in what you just said uh, that really strikes me as something I've been thinking quite a lot about, which is I have to live in this world, it is capitalistic, it is white supremacy based, it is heteronormative, it is all these things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And yet I can't fully just be like, mm, I'm out. Like I, I, I yeah. can't, so, so how do, you, so I live in a place where my body, I'm told my body is wrong. I am wrong for having the body I have. And yet I know, differently. And I still have to live within this world <laughs> that doesn't believe I, re- I mean, if we're going to just be really truthful, like that does not believe I, I deserve to live in the body that I have. And then that we live with that tension. And I would say this is not only just fat people, you know, straight size people feel this all the time too. I mean, what is, how many billions of dollars now is the diet, culture industry diet and wellness i mean it's like i don't know 73 billion or something it might have been the last number i saw so i mean we're just constantly told who we are is never good enough and so i feel like that has to have some long term traumatic effects on our psyche things like self-worthiness valuing ourselves valuing others and then to spend the rest of our lives if we're conscious enough To go through a journey to come back to healing our inner child to come back to oh yes right i am worthy i spent like two years saying over and over to myself i am worthy as exactly as i am i am worthy of love i am worthy of safety just because i never knew i i mean i had only been told i wasn't worthy and then it took two years of constant like affirmations and post-it notes all over my the surfaces in my home to be like oh yeah right i'm worthy i'm worthy i'm worthy i'm worthy i mean that's that's a lot of trauma that gets built up and yeah i just i feel like oh like what do we do with that how does how does kind of the process of coming back to our bodies the process of rejoining our bodies of being embodied how does that help us with this tension
1: Mm -hmm. i i think it absolutely can and what i often ask my clients is like because i don't want to ever assume that it is safe to do embodiment work, work to heal relationship with self, with food, with movement, because there are, like, tangible ways where it might be not safe for that person. Then add things like uh, gender, sexuality, like, all the identities, like disability, chronic illness, uh, racialization, all of those things, right, can you know, intersect to make it tangibly, like, unsafe for people. So, I never want to assume that there is, like, one end goal, one way to get there. And I ask people, like, where is there space? Where is there some flexibility right now where a little bit of something
0: different might be possible? Even as you said that, I just felt myself breathe deeper and settle more into my body. Just even that question of being asked, that
1: mm-hmm. yeah so not expecting people to like get to the end with the first step <laughs> that they take Um, and this is something they talk about at the center for body trust so I'm doing their year-long body trust provider training right now which I was just like waiting for them to reopen it yes, <laughs> I've, I've been so monitoring it too yeah they I, I don't know if it's full yet but they just opened for a second round very expensive but i cannot recommend it enough it's so good um but hillary and dana they talk about working the edges of your comfort zone and i think that question of like where is there space where is there enough safety to explore certain things is it you know getting rid of your scale is it deleting a calorie tracking app is it um, noticing how often you are body checking throughout the day Like. Where is there enough safety to like start that process?
0: Yeah, absolutely. yeah. And then, so, if there is space for people and there is a desire to do more embodiment work, what does that look like? What are some of the things that you take people through or do with them? I imagine there's a whole swath of things, but it'd be neat to just get a sense
1: hmm Yeah. I like to start with just a noticing practice, which, you know, it's connected to like mindfulness. I'm not really trained in mindfulness. There's a lot through like osmosis that you pick up in trainings and things, but yeah, I I will often start with like, you actually don't have to try and change anything right now. I just want you to notice like, what does your self talk like? Notice Any sensations in your body when maybe when you're thinking about food, maybe when you're preparing a meal, when you're eating, building that like noticing of what's actually going on with you, which is likely tension, shame, hypervigilance in the
0: nervous system. Yeah, yeah. I love that because we can't shift anything if we don't even notice it's happening I've done work like this with clients, um, both kind of body clients, leadership clients, career clients, writing clients. I work with a lot of different groups of people and that practice of intentionality and noticing what's going on inside of them is so core to everything. And it's, it's really interesting because it is something we actually have to practice i think at least i'll speak for myself and i will speak for like a lot of my clients like we don't know how to actually do this usually right that almost like turning on like your observer self this part of you that is like really noticing what's happening body sensations thoughts whenever i have whenever i do inner critic work with people and they start their you know they may um I'll invite them or they may decide what would be helpful for them is to kind of Notice and write down what their inner critic says to them in a day. <laughs> like you invariably come back, and you're like, oh my God, my inner critic never shuts up. I had no idea. I was so negative towards myself. Like there's always a bit of a, not always, but I would say there's often a bit of a reckoning that happens when this kind of awareness, consciousness, noticing starts to happen. And people are quite shocked by it.
1: Yes. And also, by noticing what it does is it immediately orients you differently to what's going on especially with like inner critic thoughts noticing that voice it inherently like puts you a little bit outside of it you have to take a step back to be able to see it and to notice it and then maybe is there some space to explore like is that your voice? That's something I ask. I know whose lot. voice is that? I know. Yes, yeah, and yeah. sometimes you know it's very clearly a person. Sometimes it's more broad. My own
0: is like one specific person. Oh, uh, mine <laughs> <Personally>. too. <laughs> it's always that voice. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Agree. Yep.
1: <laughs> but yeah, it it immediately helps people to get just a little bit outside of that to be a bit outside of the experience as opposed to like totally enveloped by it and which can re-traumatize yeah and and maybe to begin like naming that voice as something other than self like and you know
0: often what it is is fat phobia or internalized fat phobia Mm -hmm. yeah yeah beautiful so you start with connecting people to their noticing, bringing awareness to their body sensations, what they're hearing, um, and then where do you, like, and again, I imagine this is different for others, but is there, like, where do you go from there? Like, how do, how does the shift, whether the mindset shift or the kind of shift into body, how does the action part start to happen?
1: uh that's a hard question you know this is making me think of a couple sessions I've had recently and like how people often you know recovering from diet culture or like considering leaving diet culture like you just like you want the plan right like the plan is yes please three steps right (laughs) and I I don't have that and you know sometimes I feel you know like the bearer of bad news for people it's like I I don't have a a 12-step process for you what I can do is like support you in like noticing what's actually going on for you building that awareness of sensing what's going on in your body um, from like a, a nervous system perspective. I work a lot with polyvagal theory is something I really love. Oh, Say more what that is. Oh yeah. But, well, polyvagal theory is, um, uh, it is like a theory, but pretty well established by some research of the different parts of our nervous system and how they developed over time for like adaptive and protective purposes. But to, to say quickly, like uh, building interoception is is the word that they use in polyvagal theory of sensing what's going on in your body in your nervous system. So looking at how the uh, sympathetic part of our nervous system, which like runs up and down the spine, uh, is connected with anxiety responses, with fight or flight responses in service of protection and safety. Our dorsal vagal part of our nervous system, which is kind of in the lower part of our abdomen like below the diaphragm, is responsible for the freeze response. Um, so if the threat is like so big that we can't fight it or run away from it, then basically we play dead to keep ourselves safe. And what I love about polyvagal theory, because often, you know, in, in trauma work, talk a lot about fights flight, freeze, and and fawn as well. But what gets left out that polyvagal theory includes is our ventral vagal system, which is kind of from the diaphragm up. So uh, vagal, you've heard me say a few times, refers to the vagus nerve, which is like a really central nerve in our torso. But the ventral vagal is like our safe, social, connected system. Um, It connects through our lungs, through our heart, through our diaphragm and up into our face, our tone of voice, our facial expressions, all of like our sensing. So you think about like that's how we connect to people and um, that sense of connection is what promotes feelings of safety in people. We know we are safe through connection because humans are Communal, like animals, we are pack animals. We are meant to find safety in numbers together, and to be able to communicate that is something I pay a lot. Of. I try to pay attention to uh, in session of making sure I'm being expressive, that I'm not being monotone, um, and that can help like my nervous
0: system talk to my client's nervous system to promote like more feelings of safety. Yeah, and that was the ventral vagal system. Yeah. Is that what it was called? Yeah. Oh, so mm-hmm. interesting.
1: I can send you a video. I've got a, I've got an excellent, like, 10-minute video that's from the Polyvagal Institute that talks about trauma and the different parts of the system,
0: and yeah. it's really great. I would love that. I'll link to that. I'll just make a note to myself to, to add that. Yeah. What I love about that is there's so much rooted in the science of the biology part, because I think... I think for a lot of people, we think there's something wrong with us when we have a physical reaction and almost like that we're at fault for not overriding it, but it's designed to not be overridden. (laughs) So I think when you explain the biology to people, they're like, oh, I'm not wrong. This is just how my body operates. So let me find a way to work with my body in that Uh way.
1: And who benefits from you overriding your survival systems? Like what benefits from us not being in touch with our bodies, our warning systems, our embodied sensation that something is wrong here? Like who benefits from us not being
0: in touch with that? Yeah, (gasps) I've never thought about it that way before. And I'm mad again, I'm filled with rage. (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah, join me. I'm angry about all the time. Right.
0: (laughs) I know. I pretty much live from a rage state these days, which is why I had to create a podcast about joy, because I was like, all right, yeah. Hey, both are necessary, both are powerful. Right? Fuel sources, Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, that is so interesting. Because if we're constantly in those responses and hypervigilance and our own distress, we can't notice what's going on around us. Is that the
1: yeah more or less or or we feel like um like greater disconnection um uh, we might transgress like our own boundaries a lot easier yeah all all sorts of things
0: yeah oh sneaky sneaky telling you oppressive systems are very well designed Mm -hmm. yeah
1: and like they uh infiltrate like our very
0: bodies Oh, I hate that. And non-consensually, you know, like this is just kind of slammed into us all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: I talk about it as like indoctrination. It's like, you know, working with people doing anti-diet, body liberation, fat liberation work. It's like, it's like cult deprogramming. Yeah, I was just
0: thinking it's like high control group. Yeah, wow. Yeah. One of the things that I get asked... uh, often, and I'm, I'm curious how you would answer this, is one of the things that people ask me is like, like, how long is this going to take? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? It's that whole, do you, do, when, can I have your 12-step program and approximately how uh-huh. long will it take for me to divest uh-huh. from diet culture? Like, <laughs> um, what would your response be to that? Like, how do you? <laughs> yeah, this is me being Debbie Downer, bear of bad news yeah. again. Yeah. <laughs> <For people. laughs>
1: I, I'm really transparent with with people that like it's not overnight like this shit takes time you've had a lifetime of being indoctrinated and brainwashed by all of these ideas that are so unconnected like interconnected fat phobia healthism ableism transphobia racism colonialism like all of it is uh so woven together and from birth like we learn all of these things and it takes a lot of time to rebuild that trust with yourself and to
0: even accept the idea that you can be trusted with your body say more about this because this is something so powerful to realize that you can be trusted with your own body because i don't think most people realize they don't actually trust their own bodies yeah what's that transition like
1: Well, so this is all very directly from Center for Body Trust, if it isn't clear from the name. But, uh, yeah, Hillary and Dana talk about this all the time, and, and Sirius Bonner, who's one of our facilitators, too. The, I mean, the first thing they say is body trust is your birthright. You weren't born not trusting your body. You know, as babies, we know to cry when we are hungry. Um, and to be fed and to move and to ask for what we need. Some of us get that, you know, messaging overridden sooner than others based on whatever experiences. But if you think about just the concept of trust in general, it takes a really long time to build, then it can be broken in an instant. And then you think about, well, in terms of diet culture and these oppressive systems and fat phobia, it's not an instant it's a lifetime of being inundated with this messaging and that takes time to undo and there's you know always those learning edges of like you get to one place and you realize like oh my god there's all, like, all this more that I, it's true. that I can see now that i can understand now and that i need to work on and, and learn i would say in my own experience which i have a lot of privilege behind me to be able to get to this place. Um I'm I'm about like 10 years into this like personal work. I would say at like year seven or eight is like truly when I felt myself settle into it. And that's not to say that there wasn't like a settling that happened all the way. And I have a a long way to go still. Like I'm very much so a learner and try to be like alongside my clients and all this and recognize like I do not have it all figured out. Like my shit is messy a lot (laughs) lot of the time. It's hard and that's okay. Um, uh, But yeah, I would say like a good like six, seven years. And then, you know, part of it too is like, as you do this work, um, it's pretty common for bodies to change. Like my body size has gradually consistently increased. I have not reached really like a plateau I guess maybe I have but it's I don't know (laughs) like my body is like significantly bigger now than when I started doing this work and then that becomes like a whole new way to reorient to myself and you know now that like access is a much more significant issue for me than it used to be and like you know probably not going to be doing a whole hell of a lot of traveling until I'm able to buy like first class tickets and all of these things that impact me in a different way now so there's you know that new edge of like learning how to I don't know exist (laughs) yeah yeah it's it takes time and it's it's also too something I talk about and I have, like, clients ask me, like, does it get better? Like, does it get easier? Do the thoughts go away? Does the self-criticism go away? The hypervigilance around food and movement. And I, you know, I often say to people, like, I'm not looking to sell you a quick fix. I'm not going to lie to you like diet culture does. I'm not going to say that uh, it's instant or that it's ever even going to completely go away but your relationship to it changes. Your ability to notice it sooner and name it as internalized depression and also to notice, like, this is a big thing too. What other stressors are going on in my life where the scapegoat of the body story is coming up as the thing to put all my energy and thoughts and feelings towards right now? What other stressors do I have going on that I maybe don't want to confront right away and instead it's showing up and feels maybe easier in a way to criticize my body instead.
0: Yeah, can you give an example of that? Because I I think that is very insightful and not always realized by people. So yeah, what's an example of that?
1: I guess I could use like myself as an example, but like uh, just like buildup of like stressors, you know, like (laughs) running a business, opening an office space, prepping some like consulting work and talks that I'm going to be doing. And then on top of that, I have a hormonal disorder. And so when my cycle hits at the right spot, like, yeah, I still have days where I have a harder time with my body image. Absolutely. And adding all those other stressors on top, it's going to be harder for me to like access that like connected, calm, (laughs) safe Part of my nervous system, because I'm perceiving and experiencing all these other like threats and stressors in other ways, so yeah, or like I don't know, family stuff going on, like tension in like various relationships, like at work, if it's a particularly heavy week, things like that. yeah, we often get taught under this system of fat phobia that like the body is the only thing that we need to focus on, like. That is the scapegoat. That's what I refer to it as. It's like, well, Mm -hmm. no, if you just fix your body, then everything else in your life will be fine. So I'm not going to pay attention to any of this other stuff, the maybe like trauma healing that needs to be done, the shitty abusive relationships that I need to leave or change my orientation to. Instead, I'm just going to lose
0: 10 pounds and everything will be better <laughs> everything will be better yes yeah the lie of that is monumental yeah i i, I wanted to kind of to agree with you on the time frame it, it that's very similar to my time frame as well like that six seven year mark that i'm at about now where i it, it has hit a really beautiful love where i'm like oh yeah i haven't thought this thought in a long time or i haven't done this thing in a while and then and at the same time something else will happen I'll be like oh that's still there okay time to go deeper and for anyone listening who's feeling a little intimidated by those numbers what I do want to underscore and Alexander I think you did this as well is that it's I don't know I always envision it like a snowball like the as you start this process like a lot of people start by getting rid of their scale I think that's a really accessible way for a lot of people hard thing to do but it's like a huge first step a huge threshold to cross threshold to cross but you know you do that and then the snowball starts rolling and then you do something else and it does get easier I really found like that first six months to be the hardest To just kind of, and also even managing relationships. So I imagine that's another thing that comes up (laughs) in your practice because you're starting to change your way of being and thinking and relating to your body. But then everybody else, for some reason, they're also they're not changing the the same way. Mm -hmm. And then so dealing with relationships can be really challenging as well here.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, like, all the baggage that comes with those relationships, which, like, a lot of this is, like, family of origin relationships. And, like, is diet culture not a form of, like, intergenerational white supremacist violence? Yes. That gets passed down and continues to traumatize people from generation to generation. Yeah, it's, like, it's hard and... It's possible, and another thing I, I say to clients is like, I am the fattest and happiest I've ever been in my life. Yes,
0: I say that too. Yeah, and I am, and I feel the safest I've ever been. I didn't realize I never had a sense of safety before. I And it, so I was so oblivious, I didn't even know it was missing. I didn't even know that was a thing, really, until about three years ago, and I was like, oh this is safety. And talking about embodiment, I could feel it in my nervous system. My nervous system was not, I'm a pretty high energy, like 100% extrovert person. So, which means to for my body, I can be very like high frenetic energy. I'm also a bit of an over, a bit, I'm a total overworker. I'm trying to get better at this too. But so I can just really easily tend to just burn out, burn out, burn out. And my whole system gets thrown off by it. And so about three years ago, I kind of I was intentionally working on this and really felt coming back to my body. I started doing much more regular meditation and kind of also breath work was really helpful for me because I think. Like I, again, probably quite gendered, but like many women, I breathed only with my chest. And so learning how to like breathe with my diaphragm and let my belly expand. I mean, bellies aren't allowed to expand. You're supposed to constantly suck them in. I spent 40 years sucking in my belly, right? So allowing it to move. And I remember the release of that, like I would cry. Like there was just so much happening in my nervous system when I kind of found that I had never had safety in my nervous system before. And it was such a shock. I'm like, God, I'm 40. I'm now I'm 40, almost 43. But at the time I was about 40. And I'm like, uh, how is, like, it was weird to discover safety at 40, you know? And some people never get there. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. And then we just live in this activated way. Yeah. So, Alexandra, I also wanted to ask you about this concept of having and running a trauma-informed practice I think again I think this is one of those terms that I hear a lot but I don't know if I even have a really good sense of what it actually means you're not alone in that okay
1: (laughs) the the term gets
0: thrown around and by people who I don't think have trained I assume there's some kind of training okay yeah uh no there's no singular training okay okay
1: yeah, yeah, it gets used in a in a lot of different ways. I'm actually going to be doing a a talk on this for dietitians in Canada at their conference in May, which I'm really excited about. That's
0: so cool. My friend Donna might be there. You might meet my friend. She's a she does dietetics. Yeah.
1: Uh, my perspective on trauma informed practice is that it must be anti-oppressive to be trauma informed. Um, Because living under systemic oppression is violent and those experiences of violence generate trauma responses. And so if you are claiming to do trauma-informed work, but you're not bringing in that lens of intersecting identities and experiences of oppression and really centering the complexity of your client's experiences, one, you're probably perpetuating trauma and maybe re-traumatizing clients and like too it's like I mean it's not it's not really trauma informed you know and I I think too you you made a comment at the start about how you were fortunate to find like one person who had that lens of anti-oppression and and to maybe include fatness in that There is just such rampant fat phobia in this industry, in this field, which is why I also do consulting work uh, and train work with other counselors, dietitians, like people in related fields to talk about like how to not perpetuate violence to your clients and how you're doing your work. Because to be trauma informed is to build a sense of safety. It's to build a relationship. And if you are microaggressing your clients or just discriminating against your clients, that's, you're not building safety. That's not safe. And I think there's a lot of ways to, like, I, I approach trauma informed pra- practice also from a feminist, anti oppressive lens, which means that I show up very human in my work i am not a blank slate i am not neutral i do not think that is
0: possible i think it is violent to perpetuate this myth of neutrality in doing this work i'm so glad to hear you say that that's something that always pissed me off i'm like no be a human with me please yeah absolutely
1: i I don't blame counselors for thinking that way oh the programs we go through drill that into you so hard and it's like heaven forbid you say a single like thing about yourself because then you're taking away from the client's experience and it's like you know what for a lot of my clients I'm the first like safe enough fat person for them to talk to about this. Yes. And I'm just gonna pretend that I don't have my own experiences in my body and I'm just gonna leave them hanging, continuing to feel isolated in their experiences. Absolutely not (laughs) No, I'm gonna say like yeah I can relate to that. I'm gonna share a little bit about my own experiences in my body, my own journey towards uh, more embodiment and body acceptance and fat liberation. And I think that's being trauma-informed too. Yeah. Oh, I got loud. I got excited about that I know. One. I was
0: like, yes, <laughs> everything you're saying. I'm like, yes, 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 we do. We need more of that. Yeah. Yeah. I hate the blank slate approach. I. I mean, I would yeah, I have many experiences with this with different therapists and it was just so infuriating not feeling, because it takes away from the connection. There's no connection then. And- Because what are you connecting to? Well, and I wonder too, if it's so connected into power dynamics. You know, I'm the therapist, I'm the expert, you like I. So therefore, if I were to share any of myself, I would then what, decrease my power again? So that's then rooted in colonialism, supremacy and all the other-
1: Exactly, and like you know, back to the like Freudian psychoanalytic days where you weren't even like looking at the at the person. You're lying down, looking at the ceiling, and they're like sitting creepily behind you. Like, talk about power (laughs)
0: dynamics, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Well, it's so nice to hear about how this is being done differently. I will say, you know, these therapy experiences. I think when I discovered coaching by being coached by someone who was doing coach training, I was like, hey, can I use it as a guinea pig? Because I'd never heard of it before. It is. It was one of the reasons I fell in love with coaching because it does allow you to bring in your fuller self as a coach. And it's a different type of relationship and it's designed that way. Um, so it, for me, it felt like a missing piece. And it's so nice to hear that this is starting to show up in... Therapist sessions with counselors, with social workers, where it is not privileging power but actually holding space for safety, trauma informed practice, and connection with client. Because I think that's what a lot of people are seeking.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I get that feedback from from people. Even in consultation, I tell people I'm not a blank slate. You're gonna know my opinions on certain things. You're going to learn things about me as we're working together and staying really open to feedback as well, uh, which is also part of building safety, soliciting that feedback frequently from clients, actively asking about harm that might be occurring in session and trying to build a lot of safety around that, honoring however much the client feels safe enough to share. And going really slow—that's you know part of trauma-informed practice. And oh yeah, another big thing that I do is I try and be really transparent in my approach, and to give people options. So, having my background in anti-violence work, I worked for a sexual assault center for quite a few years and, and volunteered there. Informed consent was a huge part of that work because we were supporting people accessing uh, medical services after experiencing sexualized assault Um, so that like idea of informed consent has really stuck with me and how I practice so I might ask a question and then I will say to them here is why I'm asking this question or this is how I'm thinking about this this is where my head is at and how I'm perceiving things and that is just me I I do not hold any objective ultimate truths about anything. This is all informed by my own experiences and how I show up in the world and how the world treats me.
0: But this is what I'm thinking. What do you think about that? Oh my God. I love it. I love it. This should just be how we're trained to interact with people as like human beings in the world heaven forbid we be human oh my gosh yeah and the work I like that you say and the and that there's a there's a messiness to this there's learning how to repair soliciting feedback getting feedback that might challenge us how do we sit with that how do we repair how do we move forward like there's so much involved in that and I mean I'm it's so exciting to hear (laughs) that you're doing this work that you're thinking about it For people listening who are like, oh my gosh, I need to find someone like Alexandra or maybe Alexandra, I hope that too. But what are some of the ways that people can, are there like questions they can ask therapists or counselors or social workers? Are there like, how do they find a type of support person like yourself who is thinking about these things, who can create that safety for them? It's,
1: I, it's tricky. There aren't as many networks in Canada specifically as there are like, say, in the States. Um, There is a body trust provider directory through the Center for Body Trust. So that could be something to check out. However, there's very few Canadian <laughs> um, practitioners on that list. Um, I would say look for people like on their websites and their social media or directory postings who actively are speaking to anti-oppression in their work who are like acknowledging these things like i i put myself out there very clearly in how i orient to this work which is like a whole other thing people are like oh but then like people like might be deterred by that and i'm like yeah then they're not people for me to work with <laughs> like yeah, anyway, that like idea that we have to be all things for all people as a, as a therapist is like so absurd to me. Look for it in their websites and I also think that like kind of any counselor with their salt will have a consultation, a free consultation for people. Um, For me, I think it's really important. In fact, I don't let people just book in a first session because I say like I want you to meet me and get a sense of me notice like how you feel around me if i'm going to be the right person for you to work with ask me any questions that you want to i have certain points that i can speak to but i encourage people like you know what is important for you that you want to get out of counseling ask those questions in the consultation or send an email and say hey what's your experience working with xyz what's your training around it Demand those things of the person that you're working with. Like they should be showing up for you, not the other way around. So I always really encourage people to yeah, ask those questions, ask really directly and trust your gut feeling
0: when you meet the person and if you feel safe enough and that you could build a relationship with them. That's such good advice. I think there can be a little bit of like white coat syndrome that happens with you know where we think but it's the therapist they like we 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 also kind of give away our power pretty easily to therapists and doctors and so this whole idea of self-advocating of asking hey do you run a trauma-informed practice what are your anti-oppression principles how do you enact that within your practice how are you going to create safety for me as a fat person what's the office furniture like did you think about my body like there are these really important questions that I that I just want to, you know, kind of underscore what you said, Alexandra, which is t- that people need to know that they can and should ask these questions and that their safety should be privileged, not the expertise, I'm putting quotes around, expertise of the the therapist or medical professional or whatever. Because we just, I've seen, I, my, my parents are in the medical field. I worked in their offices and like people would just become, humble and like as if they know nothing about their own bodies around my dad who was a surgeon and I'd be like why are they acting like this like and then so it was all up to the surgeon you know to kind of find stuff out but like as opposed to people going in and, and really knowing what matters to them and advocating for themselves and I think especially fat people in those situations we have to advocate even more so to to feel as much safety as we can in situations that are often not safe.
1: Absolutely. And you know, it takes it takes time to be able to advocate.
0: Yeah, and practice and Yeah, exactly. And lots of gentleness.
1: Yes. Especially in terms of like counseling or coaching or somewhere where you are giving your money to the person, they work for you. Yes, they work for you. Yeah, yeah. They they are there to work for you, not the other way around.
0: I love that. Yeah. Oh, so good. I feel so fired up. Um. So let's talk about joy. How do you stay connected to joy? What brings you joy? How do you live in this tension of our world?
1: Yeah, I love this question. It's something I ask clients a lot too. So jo- I talk about like joy and pleasure or. Like things that feel maybe a little less bad sometimes if it's hard to access joy or pleasure. Yeah, I feel like that. my answer to this question is so different being in the winter months still. Um, looks a lot different for me. I think the biggest thing is like the relationships that I have. My partner, my friends, my found family... Um, my niblings like I have so much joy in connection and connection in those relationships I have a lot of really incredible fat people in my life who just like get it and being able to have those relationships where I don't need to explain any of it like it's all immediately understood we're on the same page we can have challenging conversations but we can also just have like a lot of Fun and like, make jokes together. I mean, weekly d and d is a big part of that, too. Like it's so it's so fun. It's so joyful. I've been running the game for the first time ever over the last few months. It is set in middle Earth, which is really exciting. but also, kind of stressful in ways for me because I love it so much I'm like am I getting it right and it's like no you can just do whatever you want with Tolkien fun. approve <laughs> yeah, right he was constantly rewriting his own stuff so yeah <laughs> I figure it's fine but I'm just getting to like be, be silly be ridiculous with yeah. my friends and doing like a a weird voice for a goblin that they got to meet you know like and just being like funny and like having fun with my friends brings me so much joy sending TikToks back and forth with my older niblings who are both teenagers now that brings me so much joy just getting those like little bits of connection and sending like funny videos back and forth and seeing what they post and like what they're interested in i love so much i i Wear my title of auntie with like a huge amount of pride. It's like so important to me to be, yeah, to be an auntie and to show up for for all my nibblings. Brings me so much joy, like a a truly incredible (laughs) amount of joy. Yeah. What else? Oh, I was. You know, I had been. I'll be honest with you. I was thinking about this question. like, Sophia's gonna ask me like, what brings me joy at the end of the episode. Another thing. I've been trying to do a lot more lately, and I was thinking about this in terms of embodiment too. Is just singing to myself, <laughs> which I, again, recovering theater kid did it. I wasn't a musical kid, but I did a couple of them, and I've just always liked singing. I've never really formally trained, but I think I'm like half decent at karaoke. But I also like love like learning about like vocal technique and like watching YouTube videos and like just playing with like my voice, like in the shower, like playing with like the acoustics of the title and like how that feels and like singing some of like my favorite songs and when I'm blow drying my hair, which takes me for fricking ever. (laughs) and like, uh, while I'm cooking, um, but having like music and like singing and like really like noticing and feeling that
0: in my body well and isn't i could be misremembering but isn't like humming and singing it connects into polyvagal stuff right like isn't it a so, a soother or something i what did I, I read that somewhere yeah yeah i i don't know exactly but it's, that sounds right <laughs> yeah because i remember reading something about anxiety and humming and singing out loud were two of the techniques because it helps I guess soothe an activated vagal nerve I don't know whatever it was but yeah yeah I I
1: also as as much as I love the biology side of things too I I also like to think about like what makes us human like what kind of cultural practices have humans had across all of history you know like we sing we dance
0: yes we tell stories
1: yes tell stories I think that's play instruments like i think that is integral to our well-being and there's a reason why that has been tracked across cultures and across time for humans which i would say actually this is another thing that brings me joy i love watching youtube videos about dinosaurs <laughs> learning about like um yeah archaeological history oh i've there's a really good pbs channel yeah called eons pbs eons i just love like watching little 10 minutes and and learning about uh, different like fossils and dinosaurs, and I find it's like it's actually been really helpful for my perspective and like my worldview and like overall well-being. Like understanding more of like the scope of our planet and what life on this planet is like. And I also just find it interesting. And I learned my favorite dinosaur. Well, it's not dinosaur. It's a pterosaur anyway
0: my my five-year-old nephew would be very impressed with you right
1: okay (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah look up uh as darkids as a as a class. this is another kind of like in similar to seals as darkids my favorite is called quetzalcoatlus oh i know that one do you yeah they're like giant flying giraffes yeah 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 which is like they seem like they it's like this giant creature that seems like it shouldn't be able to do what it does and it can it could fucking fly and it literally like this giant head giant neck (laughs) like a flying giraffe it's just so cool
0: (laughs) i love it i love it i love that we're ending on dinosaurs (laughs) it makes me so happy (laughs) there you go oh alexander thank you this has been so wonderful to talk to you i have loved learning from you this last hour-ish and Yeah, I just, I feel the immense gift you must be to your clients with just your presence, with your commitment to to expanding your own knowledge, learning, holding space for them and safety. And yeah, like how lucky are they? Thank you.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate that. And it's, I feel like such a lightness now. Like this is very, this was
0: very joyful. Right? Again, I hope so. I go for meta joy. We're going to like talk about joy. We're hopefully going to feel some joy. We're just (laughs) going to like. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is all about. Expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. Alexandra Shuin's practice is called Selkie Counseling. And I loved what she shared about why she loves Selkies. And so I found a poem about Selkies, or titled Selkie, that feels like it connects to the episode's themes of embodiment, permission, self-agency, all while living in a challenging world. So this poem is by Rachel Plummer, and it's called Selkie. The secret me is a boy. He takes girlishness off like a seal skin, something that never sat right on his shoulders. The secret me is broad shouldered. The sea can't contain him. The land can't anchor his waves to its sand. The secret me swims with big fish, brash. He swaggers like a mermaid, bears teeth like daggers, barks at the moon. When it's thin. He's whiskered, that boy, thick skinned, quick thinned, always turning tail. He wears his own skin like a sail, lets it carry him to where salt swallows mouthfuls of air. Let them find me there by the shore, the girl seal with a secret boy inside, rough voiced, black eyed, washed bare as the beach. By the tide. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life on YouTube at youtube.com slash at fatjoy and on Patreon at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Please do check out the show notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly fat joy day. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.